We are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And the topic is really celibacy. That's our topic we're talking about today. Celibacy and how it relates to singleness and marriage. I like to begin with a question sometimes and open it up. So I guess we'll start off with a question. What is better, singleness or marriage? Anybody have any thoughts on that? No, no, Anita, Anita you can't say singleness, no. <laughs> Anybody besides my wife have uh, an idea of what's better, singleness or marriage? Yes. You said yes. You believe that both are best. Depending on God's will, throwing God's will into it. Okay, the old God's will clause, yes. All right, I like it. I like it. I, I have had people, uh, even this morning, as I talked to people about it, uh, said, no, singleness is better. Um, but uh, we'll see, uh, because I think that was one of the areas in Corinth that there was some contention over. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they wrote Paul. Uh, we've been studying Corinthians here, 1 Corinthians, for some time, uh, most of last year at together and uh, this past year, and we um, are only in chapter 7, and Paul begins chapter 7 by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Over the years, there's been much said about being single. In Corinth, there were some, evidently, from this passage, who believed that if you really wanted to be spiritual, if you wanted to reach that next level of spirituality, singleness was to be prized, or celibacy was to be thought of as better, the most spiritual way to live. Even today, the Roman Catholic Church requires its priests, its monks, and its nuns to be celibate and to remain unmarried. In fact, according to the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church holds that celibacy, or at least singleness, is a state that is superior to marriage. As the Council of Trent, at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church pronounced an anathema, that is a curse, against anyone who teaches that the married state is preferable to that of virginity or celibacy. So the Catholic Church curses that we, if we say that marriage is preferable, um, and they view celibacy to be preferable, although uh, in there, it's interesting, in the Catholic dogma, they have seven sacraments, and one of them is celibacy and another is marriage, so nobody can complete all seven uh, sacraments. But... Um, 
you know, there, there are other cultures. I know that uh, when I was teaching in Africa, when I was uh, teaching at the undergraduate level, there were some of our students at the Bible college there who wanted to go on to seminary, and some of them would not be accepted to certain seminaries unless they were married first. So they completed university, now they wanted to go study, become a pastor, and there are some seminaries that would not accept you if you were not yet married because they viewed that every pastor should be married. And throughout the world, though people might not say it directly, I think many people uh, imply that they think marriage is better than singleness. They may do it indirectly, they may do it worked into a compliment somehow, If you're single, and you've been single, say, past the age of, I don't know, 25, you've heard some of these compliments. Somebody might say to you like something like, uh, I don't know how a beautiful, intelligent person like you hasn't gotten married yet. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Or, you are an unclaimed blessing. Oh, that, that sounds really nice. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Um, you're just a wonderful person. I can't believe you're not married. Or how about this one? How do you deal with your singleness? Um, you know, uh, sort of like it's a disease or a disorder. Um, I've never heard anybody say, how are you dealing with your marriedness? Um, how about this one? Um, oh, what about this? Isn't this a funny question? People get married, like you go to the wedding, it's a couple of months, and you don't see them, all of a sudden you see them again, and what do you say? It just comes out of your mouth. I don't know why, but you say, hey, how's married life? You know, as though they're going to say maybe like, nah, we prefer singleness. You know, it's uh, kind of missing, dropping her off, and getting some of my own time, you know. Um, we've got to share everything. Um, Or, um, how about this one? This one's good. You can almost finish it as I begin it. As soon as you're content, then God will bring that special someone in your life. As though marriage is the prize for contentment. Um, So even today, we have great confusion about marriage and singleness. But in Corinth, it's evident that at least some Christians thought that singleness was better than marriage, almost the opposite of what's implied today in our culture, at least in the church. So Paul begins in verse 1, and he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that is probably the slogan to which he's responding to. I think this whole chapter makes sense, at least down through verse 25 or so, 24, Uh, to see him responding to this slogan that was being said, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, Some historians have recorded that in ancient Corinth, there were people coming to Christ and then divorcing their unsaved spouses. Because after all, Corinth was, as we've seen over this study, a very wretched, debaucherous, sinful environment. People there were a thousand temple prostitutes. There were, uh, the worship was involved with all kinds of immorality. If you were in a pagan, uh, idolatrous worship, people would say, well, how can I have Christ in the home if there's somebody worshiping idols in my home? How could this be a good environment for my children? And so some evidently were divorcing their spouses so that they could be single and Christians. 
others were saying, well, we still will be married, we're both believers, but we should be celibate, because celibacy is more spiritual than, than, uh, than sexual relationship in marriage, than a sexual relationship in marriage. That person is unclean spiritually, some might say that. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is clear. He gives us really practical principles from God. In fact, we're going to see uh, really four divine principles regarding celibacy that should help us understand his wisdom regarding physical intimacy. Four principles regarding celibacy that will help us understand God's wisdom on physical intimacy. And the first one is that celibacy is good. He says, verse 1, now concerning the things which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He says that as though it's not a slogan. He says that as though he's in agreement with it. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The word touch there is a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Um, He is saying that it is just, it is good, it is right. Um, The the this this phrase is not unique to here. We find the same phrase. a similar phrase in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Genesis 20, verse 6, Ruth 2.9, Proverbs 6.29, to talk about physical intimacy, sexual intercourse, uh, the word touch, a euphemism for that. Uh, we also have nine times in ancient Greek literature outside of the Scripture where the same word is used, always referring to that. It doesn't mean marriage. It doesn't mean literally just to touch, although... Uh, back when I was in high school, uh, we had a counselor at our Christian school who told us that at any co-ed event, boys are supposed to be 10 Bibles away from any girl. So, uh, of course, we're all buying thin line, you know, uh, <laughs> carry pocket New Testaments. Um, but I, it doesn't literally mean touch. It's just this idea of uh, physical intimacy. It's good. For a man to be celibate, to not have sexual relationship with a woman. Um, so I guess the question comes up, if that's good, why did God say in Genesis 2.18, it's not good that man should be alone? We hear that. We hear that. Sometimes people say that as well. Oh, are you alone? Mm, it's not good. Not good. We can see it all over you. You shouldn't be alone. Not good for a man to be alone. Why does the Bible say that? And here Paul, Paul says it's good. This is not a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for a response. Any thoughts? So, so Rick Dempsey's not even here. You should not be. Uh, he's always saying, no, don't answer Brian. Oh, yes. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Right. So Paul had a special gift. So did things change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Yeah. Gifting or calling. That's a that's an excellent answer. It's true. Each person has a different gift. 
It's, it, and that's, that's exactly right. It's also important to realize that in the Old Testament, uh, when, when God was creating man, you know, he created, you know, the birds, the heavens, and after each thing, he said, what, it's good, right? He created man, he says, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone, right? It's only after he created woman that he said, now migration is complete. It's very good. So women can always say, it wasn't very good until we were here. But that's because in general... His creation was not complete without woman. God reflects his own character, his own nature, his own image in his creation. Male and female, he made them, and they didn't reflect his image until they were both created. And so God has a a purpose for mankind, and it's not good for mankind to be alone. Uh, And it wasn't good for Adam, individual, as the only man on the planet to be alone. That doesn't mean that there's not a place for singleness. In fact, there were those who were called to be single even in the Old Testament. Um, but um, so, you know, Adam was incomplete in the sense that God's creation was incomplete, but not every man is incomplete without a wife. It's important to recognize that. Um, we have. Um, you know, from a creative perspective, we, we understand that creation was incomplete, but from an image perspective, we see that Eve helped complete that, and uh, we have Scripture telling us that if Christ is your master, if you've repented of your sins and turned and trusted in him as your Lord and master, you are complete in him, whether you're married or not. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. So if we say that somehow someone is shallow or incomplete because they're not married, we're having to also say that Elijah, Elisha, Dorcas, Lydia, Mary, Martha, Lazarus were incomplete Um, John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was no man greater, was single. Paul was wrong because uh, he said in 1 Corinthians 7, it is good not to marry. Um, So uh, that would be wrong for him to say that if we say that, um, that somehow man is incomplete without marriage. So... It is just, it is good. The first principle that we look at in our passage is that celibacy is good, but it is not better or worse than marriage. We find a drawback to celibacy, though, in verse 2. This is our second principle. Celibacy is tempting. Celibacy is tempting. Verse 2, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. What Paul is saying in verse 2 is that because we are created with desires for sexual intimacy and because societies like 
Corinth and our own promote promiscuity, those who are single will surely be tempted. And he said that one of the ways, one of the things, the results of that is you should get married. If you're someone who doesn't have the gift of singleness, you should get married. Marriage is a wonderful and God-ordained place for a lifelong commitment involving sexual intimacy. So therefore, as verse 9 says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So um, it's a good thing to keep in mind, though, um, that... Well, let me ask the question. Let me ask this question, because I think sometimes people come to this passage and this text, both verse 2 and verse 9, and I've had people come to me and ask this. Um, if a young man and a young woman are burning with passion for each other, does that mean they should get married? Yes or no? Anyone? No. Okay, I would say not necessarily. Uh, this is not a, a license where a guy is uh, not taking responsibility, is being irresponsible in his relationship, not leading his girlfriend properly, not being a good spiritual leader in their dating relationship, and he crosses the line physically. And then he said, well, we're obviously burning with passion. We should be married. That's what the Bible says. Almost using that verse as an excuse saying, we definitely should be married. I do not believe that's the case. Anybody disagree with me? Let me explain why. I think that, uh, you know, the qualification of a husband, really, girls, when you're looking at a guy, and if you're a Christian, there are two biblical qualifications. And I would add a third, though I can't find in the Bible. But there are two that I would say you should have. One is that, he needs to be a Christian, okay? We, we know that. We, 2 Corinthians 6.14, be not unequally yoked together, right? Okay, so, and then, um, uh, and then we have, number two, he needs to be a spiritual leader. He needs to be able to lead you spiritually, which means, guys, one of the things you should be determining in the dating relationship is, is she following you? Is she digging her heels in every time, you know, you try to make a, a decision, uh, because that's something you guys have to work through. So girls, you need to say, can I follow this guy spiritually? Is he leading me? And guys, you need to say, am I, just, am I following her, or is she following me? How is this working out? And the third qualification, though I don't find it in the Bible, is you should like him. I think there should be some sort of attraction. Um, I, you know, arranged marriages were okay in antiquity, so I'm, I'm not promoting them, but I don't find it in Scripture that you have to have strong feelings for him before you get married. Uh, but I do think it's helpful uh, uh, because love is not uh, a description of a relationship in, in the sense that, well, it, it's a verb, so it's, love is action, and love is something you do. And love reignites feelings of joyous affection. Those feelings of joyous affection may come and go, but if you're practicing biblical love properly, it should reignite those feelings. And I like to use the word reignite because it means that they were there once to begin with. Um, and so when we, when we talk about feelings, we're talking about the importance of practicing love uh, as opposed to basing your marriage off of whether those feelings are there or not. If a guy says, well, I just don't feel anything for you anymore, um, or she says, I don't feel anything for you anymore, 
you know, the answer is do what you covenanted to do before God on your wedding day. You covenanted to love one another, to practice godly love. So getting back to what we're talking about here with uh, guys overstepping the bounds, and, and uh, is, is that the question is, is he a Christian man who is exemplifying spiritual leadership? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if this guy doesn't have self-control, it's a good thing for the girl to say, I'm not sure if he is the guy for me to marry. If he's trying to manipulate me by saying, hey, we should be married because we're burning with passion, it's obviously we just lost our self, I just lost my self-control. She should say, well, maybe the problem is you're not a man who has self-control. How do I know that you can lead me spiritually? And really, guys, uh, when you're in a relationship, you are building trust from day one. And you're responsible to be the spiritual leader in that relationship. And if you prove to her early on that you cannot be trusted, you have a lot of work to do when you get married. Because when you get married, there'll be situations where you're also going to have to uh, exhibit self-control. Because you're going to be working maybe in an office environment. There'll be some young secretary who's paying a lot of attention to you. Your wife senses that. You have no idea because you're a guy and you're clueless. And she says something to you. And you say, oh, don't worry. I know where to draw the line. She says, yeah. I remember. I know about all about you and lines. You're not very good with lines. Every, every couple that comes to me for premarital counseling, one of the first questions I ask, I get to know them, I ask their testimony, but I ask them, have you drawn a line? Have you talked about a line that you don't want to pass when it comes to physical intimacy until you're married, before marriage? Have you talked about that line? And most couples say, yeah, we've talked about it. Some say, oh, no, we never talked about it. That, that's an issue. But have you talked about it? Yes. And then I say, have you crossed that line? Because if they've crossed the line, then we need to go back and talk about trust and how do we rebuild trust and how do we get this relationship on the right track headed for a godly marriage. So um, another question that I ask, and we'll just talk about this as well since we're kind of on the subject, uh, is when couples come to me for premarital, and I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here, so don't, don't send this link to anybody who comes to me for premarital, but uh, one of the first questions I ask him is, why do you guys want to get married? And you'd be surprised how many couples don't have an answer for that, uh, other than because we like each other, you know, and, and that's cute, but um, we already talked about that's not really a biblical, what, what, why? Uh, and then I walk him through an outline that Wayne Mack put together in his book, uh, Preparing for Marriage God's Way. And he has five reasons to get married. He says one of them is companionship. He bases that off of 1 Peter 3, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5. Um, he says children is another reason to get married. Psalm 127, verses 4 and 5. There are a number of verses that talk about children and marriage. Um, but um, though not every couple will be blessed with children, if you're not ready for children, you're not ready for marriage because procreation is part of God's design as you form a new family unit. And so if a couple says, well, we want to get married, but we're no way ready for children, well, you know, uh, 
sometimes we have, we, have, we have people here. I'm sure I could get a hand. I won't ask you to raise your hands. But we have, we have couples here who nine months after they got married, it's a baby, you know. So um, there's uh, no laughing, no elbows. Sorry. Um, <laughs> all right. So companionship, children, also instruction in evangelism, Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32. When you're married for a number of years, people should ask you, why does your marriage work? And you should be able to say, because we didn't come up with our own pattern for it. We didn't come up with our own rules for it. We followed the template laid down for us. And the template, the example, is Christ's love for the church. And basically, he endeavors to love me as Christ loves the church, sacrificially, wholeheartedly. And I endure to submit to him. I not endure, I endeavor. Sorry, did I say endure? Uh, I endeavor to submit to him as the church should follow Christ, as Christ is the head of the church. And so we have companionship, children, instruction in evangelism, um, also the formation of a new family unit, Genesis 2.24. We have that passage about uh, leaving, cleaving, and weaving, becoming one flesh. It's really an amazing thing that God has designed a society that should have the building blocks of families and how a new family unit is formed when a man leaves his father and mother and becomes united to his wife, and they become a family. Even before they have children, they're a family, and that's a new family unit. And it's amazing how society today is trying to break down that building block um, of, of those, those family units. And then finally, to teach servant attitudes would be another one that, that Wayne Mack has in his book, Genesis 2.18, Ephesians 5, Philippians 2, 3, and 5. This idea that we are to serve one another. Uh, it's, a thing, it's a funny thing when people get married because you have two sinners who can't get away from each other now. And so they're, they see each other more, and so they're going to see more sin. And so it's an opportunity not only to, uh, for more sanctification, but for more service to one another, loving one another with that servant attitude. But Paul gives yet another reason for marriage here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, and that's really to protect the individual from sexual immorality. Marriage is really part of marriage is to protect. To, to, he realizes he's created most people. It's interesting. I was reading this week, um, Martin Luther has quite a bit to say on this passage. Martin Luther, who started the Reformation. Martin Luther, who was the former Catholic monk, who after he broke away from the Catholic Church, married a former Catholic nun, uh, has a lot to say about celibacy and remarriage. And one of the comments he made is that uh, for every one person who has the gift of celibacy, there are 100,000 other people who should be married. Uh, now, I don't, he doesn't get that from Scripture. That's not an exact ratio. But he, you can tell from his comment that he, he believes firmly that the gift of celibacy is a rare gift. Um, and so um, also, I think to... To, to clarify some of this, it's important in these verses that we do some uh, definition of terms. And so I, I, I do want to def- define celibacy and chastity. So I want to get a, an idea of those two words, celibacy and chastity, because depending on who you're reading, uh, sometimes they have different definitions for that. I'm going to give you the Roman Catholic definitions first, and then I'll give you the Protestant definitions. In his book by Lorraine Botner titled um, Roman Catholicism, he noted that it really wasn't until a thousand years after Christ that the Roman church generally enforced celibacy for clergy. 
And he distinguishes these terms, celibacy and chastity. Celibacy, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is refraining from marriage. That's the full definition. Chastity is abstaining from sexual relations. Now, those are faulty definitions, and here's why. Because according to the canon law of the, the, the um, Roman Catholic Church, this is what Botner writes in his book, uh, a direct quote. He says, according to canon law, the vow of celibacy is broken if a priest marries, but not if he engages in sexual relations. Pardon for sexual relations can be had easily at any time by confession to a fellow, any fellow priest. But absolution for any priest who marries can only be obtained by the Pope with accompanying severe penalties. And to obtain such a pardon, it is required that he forsake his wife. Does that make any sense at all? That if you are involved in sexual promiscuity as a priest... Any other priest can forgive you, but if you marry someone, only the Pope can forgive you. So I think the, the better definitions, the biblical definitions would be like this. Celibacy is refraining from marriage and sexual relations. Celibacy is refraining from marriage and sexual relations, and chastity is refraining from extramarital, extramarital sexual relations. So you can be chaste and married because you're keeping those sexual relations within the confines of marriage. And so all of this just underscores the fact that the single life has temptations. Celibacy has temptations. And this leads us up to our third divine principle regarding celibacy, and that is that celibacy is wrong for married people. Married people shouldn't try to live as though they are celibate. Verses 3 through 5. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We have three verses. We have three examples where the husband is mentioned, the wife is mentioned. The husband is what mentioned, the wife is mentioned, the husband is mentioned, the wife is mentioned. We have Paul coming right out and saying in verse 3 that a husband should render unto his wife the affection that is due her and likewise the wife to her husband. So physical intimacy in marriage is part of your responsibility, your duty. Um, Not that it should be an irksome task. I've got to do my duty. Um, Some have said that sexual relations are really only for having children, but this passage seems to imply otherwise. Um, And while the Bible never degrades the beauty of of marriage relationship, it does speak of responsibility in the relationship. Um, The emphasis here is not, you owe me. The emphasis is, I owe you. There are some marriages where one partner virtually ignores the other partner when it has anything to do with romance. 
Um, for those who are being ignored, it's a time to exercise patience, love, patient endurance, and, and love. And when the opportunity arises, there should be a loving confrontation. I'm not saying that you just open up 1 Corinthians 7, leave it on your spouse's pillow. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about genuinely coming and talking to them in love. And if that is not effective, involving counsel from someone else. Because the Christian life really is something that involves a community. But for those who uh, are ignoring your spouse... Note that in verse 4, it speaks about authority. Verse, sorry, verse 5. It says, verse 5, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, sorry, verse 4 is right, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and also, likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I remember the first time that we left our kids home alone, uh, on purpose, uh, th- there was a. Um, <laughs> there's something that happens when your kids are actually old enough to look after themselves. It, it's kind of like for us, it happened when our neighbor, who has five kids, asked our oldest to look after her five kids as a babysitter, and we thought, well, if she could look after their five kids, <laughs> we only have three others. Seems like uh, people think she's responsible, and so uh, the first time that we. Uh, said, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to go out, just the two of us, and we're going to leave them home. And we said, okay, Amy's in charge. Our oldest is in charge. And Okay, so then we left. We found out that one of our kids did not really respect that authority. We came home. There was trouble. There was conflict. And apparently one of the younger kids said, you're not the boss of me. So we found a great solution to that. The next time we went out, it happened to be parent-teacher conferences, and we were going to the school. We're going to leave the kids home alone again. But we took that kid with us. And the school offered, uh, like, they look after young kids for parents to bring them to parent-teacher night, but you had to pay $10. So that kid, he got to take $10 out of his savings and pay for someone else to watch him. And on the way, and we went to the parent-teacher conferences, and then we got him from the little room where he was being watched, and we, we, we were in the car, and we said, how was it? He goes, I was by far the oldest kid in there. <laughs> and um, what we said to him was, well, the thing is, is you didn't honor the authority that we set in place. And therefore, when you dishonored the authority that we set in place, you were dishonoring us. And the next time we set out to go out and left our eldest in charge, we asked him, who's in charge? Amy's in charge. She's the boss. <laughs> it was instant. It was great. My point is this. If you're depriving your spouse of physical intimacy, you're depri- you are not honoring God because he has set the authority over you, over your body, as your spouse and you are rejecting his authority, therefore you're rejecting him. So it is sin. Married people should not bargain with affection. You should never say anything like, you'd better be nice to me or else, you know, it's, you're going to be sleeping next to an icicle tonight. Um, so 
A married, when a man marries a woman, he's saying to her, all that I have is yours, and I will withhold nothing from you. And though these words were really from Ruth to her mother-in-law, I think that the spirit of just partnership is so sweet when she says, entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Those are the kind of commitments that we think about when we think about marriage. There are other principles to keep in mind here. Um, But notice in verse 6, Paul says, Stop depriving one another. The way that that's actually worded implies that some in the church were actually depriving one another. In fact, what's interesting is that this same word back in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, when talking about lawsuits, is used, and it's used and it's defined as stop defrauding one another. You shall not defraud your brother. The same word here, which is used as depriving, but it actually has this idea of um, really defrauding, never defraud. He doesn't say never defraud. He says stop doing it. And he gives some concessions here. He says, except for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, and also so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When we think about um, that taking time apart, uh, there were some times in Scripture actually in the Old Testament where, uh, for example, Joel chapter 2, there was a time where the need for forgiveness was so great that even brides and grooms were asked to postpone their honeymoons in order to join the nation in mourning and repentance. Um, Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Um, Also in Exodus 19, there's a time where God's people were instructed to abstain from sexual relations for a period of three days because it was a time of preparation before God appeared as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. But the the point here is that uh, I think... It's a temporary, it's abstaining temporarily, and it seems to be, at least in the Old Testament, when there were major issues going on, major issues among the family, major issues among the people, issues of great distress. It'd be natural to abstain and devote yourselves to prayer at times like that, but of course, uh, only for a, a time. Final divine principle regarding singleness, and that is that singleness is a gift, verses 6 and 7. He says in verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, not of of command. Let me just stop there. There's some disagreement about which is the concession here. Uh, Is he saying the concession is stop depriving one another, verse 5, or is he talking about um, that you should be married, that marriage is uh, something that is good? 
and I think the general idea of marriage being good, he's not commanding them all to be married, and he's making that point. And it would be easy to misunderstand him because there are four different commands or imperatives in verses 3 through 5. Uh, or actually, back to verse 2. Verse 2, it's an imperative. Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, actually, it's a continuous idea, is to be having. And the idea there is not that you should get married. Actually, in verse 2, the idea is that you should be having sexual relations with your husband. Um, verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. It's must. It's command. Verse 5, stop depriving one another. So he's using a lot of imperatives, a lot of commands. And he wants to make clear that he's not just saying everybody should be married. Um, and he makes that more clear in verses 8 and 9. Um, but he's saying this is a concession. Probably not the best word to use there as a, as a translation. The, the word literally means to think the same as someone or to have the common mind or common awareness. So he's making them aware of all this. Marriage is a great blessing. It was instituted by God. It is the norm for male-female relationships. But it's not required. Not required for believers or anyone else. One commentator summed up Paul's teaching this way. He says, if you're single, that is good. And if you're married or get married, stay married and retain normal marital relationships. For that is of God. Spirituality is not determined by marital status. So Paul has um, come together. He's taken this passage. He's tried to clarify really from an error that was going on in the church where celibacy was being prized. Um, Getting back to the question for those who are single, why are you single? The answer is because God is perfect. God is holy and God is good, his timing is perfect, and it's not his will for you to be married at this time. And part of trusting him and believing him is believing all of that. Psalm 84.11 says, God, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield, using words of provision and protection. The Lord God will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The idea here is that he's not some cosmic killjoy up there saying, I wonder what's going to happen to this person if I just leave them single for a long time. He's saying this is what's best for them right now. They might not understand it, but this is best for them and for my glory, and they are trusting me. Um, so... I wanted to end five minutes early, and I have, because we've covered a lot even in these seven verses. We have time for questions. Any questions? Yes? I could be wrong, but I, I read somewhere that Paul is either a widow, a widower. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a good point. Uh, Paul, many believe that Paul was married at one time. The reason is, is because he claimed to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. If he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, then he would have served on the Sanhedrin. We don't know for sure that he was on the Sanhedrin, so we're putting some conjecture together there. But if he did serve on the Sanhedrin, we know that a qualification for serving on the Sanhedrin was that you had to be married. And so uh, if Paul was married, which is reasonable to to, to think about, uh, he was then later widowed 
uh, or divorced, his wife left him. We, we don't know. Uh, it's not told to us. But he was, and we'll talk some more about this next week when we talk about divorce and remarriage and, and uh, marriage. So, um, but uh, Paul, I, I think Paul was likely married. And um, when, he, uh, when he came together and started looking at uh, trying to teach uh, on singleness, he's talking about celibacy. He's talking about being unmarried and abstaining from sexual relationships. Good question. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. So the question is, uh, when your when you when Scripture says your body's not your own, it's your husband. How far does that extend when it comes to even what you wear or other decisions you make like that, like? Do you get your ears pierced or whatever? Like you say to your honey, honey, I was thinking about getting my ears, your ears pierced uh, on me. What, what, what would you think? Um, <laughs> uh, so there's a lot in that. First of all, the context here has to do with sexual relations. And so I would take, this is, that's what this is talking about. And yet, in Ephesians 5, it says, wives, submit to your husband in everything. And that's a pretty all-inclusive term. So, um, obviously, we know that when it comes to issues uh, where your husband asks you to do something that goes against God's word, that you should not do that. Uh, Acts 4 and Acts 5, shall we obey man or God? Right? We obey God. Um, But when it's an issue of preference, an issue which you have not, uh, which is not clearly a sin issue in the Bible then wives should submit to their husbands, even if their husbands are not believers, as 1 Peter 3 teaches, because the way to win them, and this is one of the, one of the secrets of the Christian life that people don't realize, one of the secrets is submission. This is our secret weapon. We will submit like nobody has ever seen. Nobody should say these Christians are the worst. They're always uprising. They're violent. They should rather say, these Christians are so submissive. Or the husband, 1 Peter 3, the, very, the, the, the word in 1 Peter 3 that stands out in verse 7, which was preached on last Sunday night by Harry Walls, you can get that message, but also from chapter 3, verse 1 in 1 Peter, is likewise. Because likewise points back to Christ as our example, who when reviled did not revile in return, what Christ was crucified on the cross. And so in the same way that Christ submitted himself to death on a cross, we submit likewise. So submission is not easy, but uh, the whole goal of submission, or one of the goals of submission, is to have the other person... Oh, is my time up? Uh, is, have, <laughs> is, have, is have the other person say, uh, this person treats me so much like Christ when I treat them so poorly. Uh, how can they do that? I'm so ashamed. I need to change. That's, that's what we do when we submit. Not easy, but it's part of our calling, according to 1 Peter 2. If you have more questions, you can come up afterwards. I'm here. God bless you. Let's just pray quickly. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We're challenged by your word. It's not easy, but thank you for the time we've been able to spend together this morning. Continue to make us more like Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.